to Fresh Image. Fresh Image is a nonprofit Catholic ministry committed to providing individuals and communities with resources to facilitate the full flourishing of the image of God in each and every single human person. Not only will you find hundreds of articles, convenient audios and presentations on our beautiful faith, but also catechetical resources to be used in the classroom, at the parish, and at the kitchen table. Today, we are happy to present Fresh Image Gospel Reflections from our founder, Tony Crescio. Tony reminds us that it is when we look into the mirror of Scripture that we discover the unique image of God we have each been created to be. My dear friends in Christ, this Sunday, like the previous two, Christ teaches us through parables. To be sure, these parables have told us much. Yet as we have emphasized the previous two weekends, what the parables reveal about the kingdom of God is far exceeded by what remains hidden, what remains a mystery to us this side of eternity. This is important for us to keep in mind, for by doing so, we attend to the manner in which our Lord has seen fit to teach us. We come to see something, in other words, of his methodology, which we might characterize as parental. By teaching us through parables, Jesus teaches us in a way that we can grow in our understanding of the kingdom of God and stretches our desire to learn more, yet without ever revealing more than we are ready for this side of eternity. This method of teaching exemplifies humility and patience. It exemplifies humility in the sense that through these parables, God humbles himself to speak with us on our level. It therefore simultaneously exemplifies patience, as God, who knows all things perfectly and in a manner that far exceeds our level of intelligibility, instructs us little by little in a manner that we are capable of understanding, even if incompletely. Moreover, the method itself demands that we too exercise the virtues of humility and patience as we seek to gain a deeper understanding of what Jesus is saying. On the one hand, it demands humility. For the simple fact of the matter is that the human mind, however intelligent, will never, never master neither the sheer immensity nor the microscopic intricacy with which God has ordered creation. On the other hand, it demands patience, for what has been revealed to us by and in Jesus Christ takes a lifetime's effort to even begin understanding. Accordingly, we sit at the feet of the Master in the firm confidence of faith knowing that he teaches us with loving humility as a parent educates a child, patiently bearing with a disproportionality in understanding, so that step by step he might raise us up to the level of his divine glory, which will become more evident next weekend. Similar to last weekend, this Sunday in the 13th chapter of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus describes the kingdom of God using various images, and he gives them to us in very succinct fashion. We receive four such images in the span of just eight verses, verses 44 to 52. Because we hear them so quickly, the danger is that we might be tempted to conclude that there is relatively little to explore here. However, our exploration of each of these images will demonstrate how faulty such an assumption would be. Instead, Jesus is giving us simple and memorable images so that they stick with us, we can call them quickly to mind, yet continue to explore their intricate depths contemplatively over the course of a lifetime. Today's discussion, then, is but a beginning, if you will. In the first parable, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. 
Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Notice, we are not told whether this individual was looking for the treasure he finds or if he has stumbled upon the treasure unexpectedly. All we know is that they have found the treasure on property that does not belong to them. But, because the individual has recognized how valuable this treasure is, they cover it back up and then promptly sell everything they have in order to buy that field, presumably to excavate the treasure and take possession of it. Stop and think for a moment how outrageous this really is. This individual has gone all in on this treasure. There is no hedging bets. There is nothing else left. Now ask yourself this. Is there anything you long for so deeply? Some desire that you would give absolutely everything, everything, in order to fulfill it. And let's ask a follow-up question. What does such an action mean? Doing this means your entire life has become about this one thing. This is an extreme reaction if there ever was one. But notice that right next to it, we have a very controlled and prudent action. Just think of what you would do if you found this thing. You would be running through the streets telling every single person you know, jumping up and down, saying, I can't believe my luck. You would be hugging strangers and kissing dogs, or maybe the other way around. In any case, this greatly tempered reaction is not what we would expect. Well, you say, of course he couldn't say anything. He couldn't risk the chance of someone else going and finding it before he was able to purchase the piece of land. But I ask, why leave it there? Why not take this thing with you and buy the land later and not risk losing it? The reason is twofold. First, the thing cannot be moved. It is only found in one place and the individual will never take this treasure off of this piece of land. Rather, he will ultimately construct his life so as to exist forever right there where he has found this treasure. Secondly, notice that he must first go and sell all that he has in order to take possession of this location. This will not take place in a day. Rather, it will take him the rest of his life to sell everything he has in order to come up with a sum, for all he has is his very self. What we have in this very short parable is a snapshot of our lives. The treasure in the field is the only thing that could ever satisfy the restless human heart, precisely because the human heart has been hardwired to desire it. The treasure is Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate the kingdom of God in person. And what the eternal word is telling us in this parable is that if we accept the grace to recognize in him the fulfillment of our every desire, we too will leave all else behind in order to be forever united with him. For this recognition will have come with the realization that to do anything else would render our lives meaningless. Our second parable offers a bit of a different dynamic. Here Jesus says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. In contrast to the last parable, this one makes it obvious that the individual is on the hunt for the object of his desire. Although he hasn't seen it, he knows it's out there, he can feel it in his bones, and he will recognize it when he does see it. However, there is an element of unexpectedness about the whole ordeal. Notice that he is looking for pearls, plural, and finds a pearl, singular. We might think of this person as a truth seeker, something like the Greek philosophers of ancient times in search of the underlying truths of the universe on their quest for happiness. Or we might think of the average run-of-the-mill teenager 
looking for something that will make him or her happy, trying pleasure, wealth, and power in turn, before realizing that none of these alone will satisfy, nor will their combination. What Jesus tells us in this parable directly contradicts the presumptions of the philosophical and popular culture of our day. Popular culture says we need a lot of stuff to make us happy. And the dominant relativistic philosophy of our time and place says that there are many competing truths out there. So many, in fact, that each person has his or her own so-called truth. Jesus says there is one truth and one source of happiness, and both are him. By God's grace, recognizing this leads to a spirit of detachment from the world, as exemplified by the individual in the parable. We stop living for the many things the world offers us and live the whole of our lives for this one pearl of great price, for the kingdom of God, to live in loving relationship with our Creator. There's another element to note here before we move on. Notice, please, that the merchant is doing exactly what his profession calls him to do, look for pearls of high value. Thus, for example, if he were a real estate mogul, he would be looking for prime real estate, and if he were a farmer, he would be looking for fruitful land. The point is, this individual is doing exactly what his state in life calls for. Analogically, this reveals something very profound about human nature. Human creatures are made for happiness. We are hardwired for it, which is why everyone wants to be happy. Everybody we know will ultimately justify their choices in life based upon their happiness. Try it out sometime. Ask someone why they do what they do. And if you keep asking them why, Eventually, you will come to the point where they have no other reason for doing what they do except that they do it because they want to be happy, either now or in the future, depending upon what they believe their ultimate happiness lies in. The Christian faith teaches us that the human creature's ultimate happiness is found only in God, and that the desire for happiness we all experience is ultimately a sign of our having been hardwired to seek out relationship with Him. Jesus Christ, then, is the pearl of great price in this parable. For it is he alone who affords the human family the chance at having the happiness we yearn for at the depths of our being, his descent to our humanity becoming our ascent to his divinity. Our third parable shifts gears on us a bit. Instead of speaking of our current situation while asking us to look ahead to eternity, this parable looks back upon history from the perspective of eternity. In this parable, there are a few details readily noticed. The first is that the kingdom of God encompasses all of reality. This is seen in the image of the fishing net, which does not discriminate as a particular lure would. A professional fisherman can tell you exactly what lure to use depending upon what kind of fish you are looking to catch at a given time of year and in a specific set of circumstances. Not so with a net. It's going to catch anything in its path. It might pull up a bottom-feeding carp or catfish or a beautiful trophy-sized bass, maybe even a stray piece of driftwood. So it is, Jesus teaches us through this image, with the kingdom of God. For while now, divine providence patiently guides all things throughout the course of history, at some point, time will reach its far shore. Then it will be time to sort out what time has produced. May God grant us the grace to be found worthy of keeping safe for eternity, and not tossed out along with what is found unacceptable. Our fourth and final parable shifts gears once again. This time Jesus says, Every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. 
The Greek reads more literally a scribe who has been disciplined into the kingdom of heaven. Accordingly, there is a beautiful parallel between this parable and our first reading for today from the first book of Kings. Therein, God appears to David's son Solomon in a dream by night and says to the young king, Ask what I should give you. In a verse that is left out of the passage read for today, Solomon begins his response by noting how God dealt with his father David. He recalls that God had been steadfast in his love for David because David had tried to live in faithfulness to God, justly and with an upright heart. In this, Solomon exemplifies an attitude of attentiveness. He has been attentive to what has gone on around him, and therefore he has learned not only from his own experience, but the experiences of those around him. What's more, he has been looking for God's work in those events. And because Solomon is so attentive, he is likewise humble. For he has witnessed both victory and tragedy. He has seen what beauty can come from living in intimate relationship with God and the chaos and destruction that comes from willfully estranging oneself from him. Therefore, Solomon makes his request accordingly. He says to God, You have made your servant king in place of my father David, although I am only a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, able to discern between good and evil. Notice the contrast between Solomon's request and the action of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Whereas Adam and Eve sought to define life on their own terms and thereby brought destruction upon themselves, Solomon understands that such is not the prerogative of the human creature. He realizes that life is not an object to be seized, but instead that life is a gift to be received from its only true possessor, God himself, who providentially orders and guides all things so as to reach their proper end. It is therefore divine providence Solomon wants to align himself with. He wants to be able to read and understand things from God's perspective, Crucial here is the reason why Solomon has this desire. He does not want this ability solely for himself, but rather to bring others into alignment with God's will, as we read in verse 9. Now notice please what happens. Not only does God grant Solomon the gifts of wisdom and understanding and the virtue of prudence. Instead, God tells Solomon that because his request is not self-centered, he will give Solomon the things we would have expected him to ask for as a fallen human creature. God says, In addition, I give you what you have not asked for. I give you such riches and glory that among kings there will be no one like you all your days. And if you walk in my ways, I will give you a long life. Why does God do this? Because Solomon's sole desire is to see as God sees, so that he can lead as God leads, and serve as God serves. Solomon is made possessor of all things if you want. Because by the divine gifts he asks for and receives, he can live with great abundance and not be hindered by it. Instead, seeing as God sees, Solomon understands how everything fits and works together and the proper ends for which they were made. This is an exact parallel to the scribe mentioned in our final parable for today. Like Solomon, the scribe has been disciplined into the kingdom of heaven, has been trained so as to understand and live in harmony with God. Consequently, he is able to teach others about the kingdom of God from the past and lead them to live accordingly in the present, referring to things old and new. This is a very important lesson for Christians. It demonstrates that in order for us to be able to see what God is up to right now, 
we have to learn what God has done in the past. We do this by spending time with Scripture above all, but also by studying the lives of the saints and the history of the church. Doing so gives us a sense of how God works so that in turn, we can cooperate with His grace in real time. To so live is to live in the freedom of divine love. My friends, if there is an underlying theme for us to walk away with this weekend, perhaps it is this. Human creatures discover the value of their lives only by valuing God above all things and living first and foremost for Him. It is of the utmost importance that we come to realize this and live out of this realization, as the parables of the buried treasure and the pearl of great price so eloquently teach us. In Book 10 of his Confessions, St. Augustine describes what it felt like for him to finally find God, describing it like this. Late have I loved you, beauty so ancient and so new. Late have I loved you. Lo, you were within, but I outside, seeking there for you. And upon the shapely things you have made I rushed headlong, I misshapen. You called, shouted, broke through my deafness. You flared, blazed, banished my blindness. You lavished your fragrance, I gasped. And now I pant for you. I tasted you, and I hunger and thirst. You touched me, and I burned for your peace. The parables we have heard today are God's way of wafting his fragrance in front of our noses. His way of calling out so as to break through our deafness. His way of shining his light in the midst of our darkness. He does this all with the desire that we see a glimmer, hear a syllable, or smell the scent of him. For he knows, as only our Creator can, that deep down we yearn for him, and once we come to this realization, nothing will be able to keep us from him. Nothing will keep us from selling all we have to be with him. If there is one thing I can promise you, it is this. Each time we come to know more about our God, we feel the same way Augustine felt. We feel like the days we spent not knowing him are days wasted, and we long to have those days back. Nothing can compare to living on God's terms, what Hans Urs von Balthasar calls the theodrama. Living life in this way is more exciting than any feature film, and more exhilarating than any song. It is life as God created it to be. It is the dramatic love story of the kingdom of beauty. Thank you for listening to this week's Gospel Reflection. For more resources, please visit us at freshimage.org. And remember, when you live a fresh life, you will be a breath of God's fresh, life-giving air to the world.